Not Quite Right for Us by Speaking Volumes is a podcast series showcasing innovative and diverse writers from underrepresented communities reflecting on experiences of outsiderness and their defiance against it. Not Quite Right for Us is based on an anthology of the same name, which is published by Speaking Volumes and Flipped High Publishing. In this episode, we'll hear The Nod by Joshua Edehin, Prodigal by Maame Blue, and Bodies by Shagufta Sharmin Tanya. Our guide is writer, curator and producer Amina Jama. A lot of my background is responding to family histories and memories, how I can bring my family stories into my work. So I've always found that the poets that I'm most excited about are multifaceted artists. So in those spaces where these art forms mix and mingle, like the most exciting work comes up. And it all influences one another for me. When I'm curating an exhibition, I think about how I can get writers to respond to the exhibition. Or if I'm producing an event, I think about the visuals of that and what photographer I want to program for it, to document it. So they're all interlinked in in so many ways. One makes the other more accessible as well, personally, my mum and my aunties and women of that generation wouldn't really come to poetry nights, but they would could see an exhibition because it's something that they can see physically right in front of them. I found that it's a lot more accessible. And you, Nana, are you a cousin or who? This episode of Not Quite Right For Us is about family. I love being in physical spaces with artwork, but I also love thinking about how to archive that work and how to like document that work and it exists in a 2D space. Cause then that can reach a lot more people and have a lot more influence in, in that way. And also you can be really experimental with the 2D spaces as well. There are ways that that can be really interactive and you can alter or maneuver how people view the artwork. Speaking volumes was, is really important to me because firstly, they really champion experimental writers, ambitious writers, writers of different generations, different practices and find a way to bring them together. They made me fall in love with live literature more because the way that they produce and curate their events are so special. It's never like a throwaway event. It's something that's gonna that's gonna stick with you for a really long time. Everyone within the team have been on hand and been have offered support outside of me working with them. I've been able to reach out to members of the team and just ask for 
general support or guidance on anything and it's been offered with complete open arms and that's really lovely because I think in a in poetry and life performance of poetry a spoken word um there are a lot of voices and it's really hard to find your footing it's really hard to find that network of supports but also be given a chance and they gave me a chance and they didn't just give me the chance and leave me to deal with it if that makes sense it was the aftercare was there as well and the support was there which was really necessary the nod by joshua idahan I see brethren in a foreign land. We cross paths and exchange a nod. In this kind of place where this kind of pigment scars. I don't really care if brethren is from these parts. It's enough they exist. Cause just this last hour past, a Berliner asked me if I sold ganja in two languages. No one but brethren knows how mad that is. A nod is not a thing taught me, like a handshake or a courtesy. My first one was on an escalator in Helsinki. I was heading up, brethren was descending. We clocked each other and I hadn't realized how alone I had been all this time in a more of cotton looks upon brethren's eyes i felt seen as brethren passed by i would have said hi but my pride wouldn't let me go for a hug maybe a high five or scared brethren wouldn't get me but they did a nod and without thinking, I did a nod. That's how I knew we were safe. Like all it takes is us brethren, and Helsinki is my city. Us brethren, and Berlin is my backyard. Us brethren, and Sweden is my mom's garden. Any other time, we would have shaken hands, taken seats, at a random, politely hostile cafe, chuckled at the awkward interaction with the counter girl, our masks off, our smiles big and bad, our language uncoded, our laughter untethered to decorum, bullying the premises, our voices so loud and unbothered, like we are in the bellies of our mother's kitchens, like we are about to fight, like we live here. Sometimes there's a nod, sometimes there's not. Sometimes they didn't see you, sometimes they don't see you. Sometimes they are lost, sometimes you are lost. Sometimes you're straight-jacketed in your own skin and theirs is unfortunate disguise. So it's a blessing when we do clock and the joy is unlock. Don't wanna gas up emotions. Don't want to let them know our emotions, so we keep interactions brief. Solidarity is a raised bow. 
Love is a hand on chest. Respect, a two-fingered salute. Shot from the brow. Blessing sent with a wink. Inside our smiles are whole sonnets. The ears of them lot are ignorant too. Where comets passing through a clouded night, we are needles in a haystack state where the God of the land doesn't know our face and the law of the land's like know your place. But look at that, we found each other, so we must be safe. How amazing is this? Are we not alive? Is that not a good thing? Place is really important, it grounds me. Maybe because I've lived in so many places and my family and my mum especially has also lived in so many places, migrating through country to country, from war zone to safety. Place is also just very important to my family as well. I would describe family as chosen kin, the people that you want to keep closest to you in the dark times, but also the good times. I would also describe chosen family, the friends that cross that threshold between friends to, to family. What fascinates me or interests me in writing is the possibilities of language. I speak English and Somali. I remember the first time I read a poem by a Somali writer. It was Watson Shira in her pamphlet teaching my mother how to give birth. That was so eye-opening and stunning for me because I read Somali words on a page and I was like taken aback. I was on the page myself, I was in the writing and that was really amazing how to dissect and distort language in that way, how to bring in bilingualism, but also within that like themes of cultural identity, of being from Somali background, being British born, being first generation, themes of displacement, what happens to a family unit when they are displaced, when they are forced to migrate, when they are taken away from everything that they're comfortable with and everything that they know. Also decades later, when they're maybe too afraid to return, a lot of my family have never returned to Somalia. It's not the same place as it was for them. Prodigal by Mame Blue. Flying to him meant taking herself somewhere she didn't belong. It was never a journey or a discovery. It was just being somewhere and then being somewhere else. Nana thought about this as she watched the chunk of money she'd been saving for a new laptop disappear from her account. British Airways thanked her with a confirmation email. She mused over things as she sat in Terminal 5 at Heathrow Airport, its vastness suggesting numerous ways to escape if you only had the means. Naturally, she treated herself to McDonald's breakfast, the sausage and egg McMuffin filling her up for the 10 minutes she needed to review her text messages. She considered the trip to him, to Parkwesi, as a movement that churned in her stomach along with her weightless breakfast. Everything about him felt indefinite and nebulous. She did not know which way to move within her feelings for him, so she didn't. She shut them off as she found her window seat in premium economy, 
slightly more legroom and inches more seat space so that her thighs were not mashed up against the sides like they had been the last time she'd taken a flight. There was only excitement then, after she'd snapped up a budget airline deal to visit a friend in Paris. That trip had been years ago, or maybe it was only weeks. It was hard to be sure about time these days. But she could ponder over Park Wessie endlessly, as if he was stuck in one time frame, a frozen image of reproach, even after all the years that they hadn't spoken. She had been dreading the trip, as she always did, the rise of the wheels, the lift-off from the runway, passengers encased in a complex structure of metal and physics that she knew she'd never take the time to understand. Instead, she would go through her to-do list and brace herself for big plates for food, two green lawns and judgmental looks as she tried to justify her presence, five years older than she had been the last time they'd seen her, before Parquesi had gotten sick. That was a time when she used to make bi-yearly trips to see him and called him father, trying to forget all the ways he had left her and her mother when she was six years old to discover his young American dream. For a time, she had believed that she could forgive his leaving, if only he promised to stay in other ways, if he forged a relationship with her, albeit a long-distance one, if he didn't speak so disparagingly about her mother, his parenting had suffered because of his own hands-off approach, as though he was not the reason she'd had to leave the house every morning of Nana's childhood at the crack of dawn, to clean office buildings at Canary Wharf before spending weekends braiding the hair of other tired mothers, just so Nana could have her choice of breakfast cereals when they went food shopping. Now Nana could count on one hand the amount of times her mother had mentioned Park Wessie, as if saying his name too many times was a devastation that would end her life. So Nana learned how to say it quietly, how to discover things about him through boxes of photographs, whispers from knowing aunties, and then finally an address. They exchanged airmail letters often, and she would greet the postman as a house guest, opening the front door as soon as she saw him coming, eager for her special delivery and for her mother not to see. Later, she realised her mother knew, as she knew most things Nana was doing in secret. But still, the thrill of having something that was just for her and Parquesi, it was unmatched for a long time. Even after the letters stopped, after she discovered by accident that she was a big sister, after he'd stopped calling. The thing between them, it was fixed in her mind at a point in time when she was nine years old and her mother let her get on a plane to reach him, to meet the elusive traveller. It was a year of new things, of a first plane ride, of eating out more in two weeks than she would ever do again in her young life, and of time spent with Parquesi. Who he was and what he did, she couldn't be sure, but she remembered how he'd carried her up to bed when she fell asleep in the car, tuckered out as the jet lag hit her, or the pride he wore on his face when he presented her with an outfit he had bought for her, an ugly one that she wished much later she'd kept for posterity, not thrown out in disgust as a teenager. She didn't see him again for two more years, as she unknowingly became a sister for the second and third time. During her next visit, Nana saw Parquesi's dream being realised, in the form of a new family. He had built a big house in the suburbs, wore polo shirts and played golf with colleagues. He barely laughed with a cigar hanging out of his mouth at family barbecues, and he loved his children. Nana sat off to the side and wondered if she was really one of them one of the children. I remember like my mum when I was a child, she once said to me, she warned me about giving away like family secrets and was just like, there are some things that you just keep to yourself that you just don't write about these sort of things. And I took that as in like not being able to write about anything that happened to anyone 
but me. But I realized as I just continued writing, I can do their stories justice without giving up their secrets. I went to Somalia for the first time when I was 16 and it was a really incredible experience. I got to meet a lot of family. I got to meet my maternal grandma who I found out she was a poet, which was a really lovely surprise. She was actually the only, at that time, the only living grandparent I, I had. And it was like very special just to sit with her and also hear her poetry. All of her poetry was oral. There were moments where we were eating dinner and I remember my grandma just sort of standing up and performing a poem and everyone just sort of quietened down, listened to it and paid really close attention to it. And when she was done, we all just went back to eating and I was just really shocked that that was just like part of her like daily thing of just like, and it was mostly freestyle as well. When I read a Somali writer on a page for the first time, I instantly felt like, oh, okay, the stories that I want to tell matter as well. Histories that we hear and don't hear and we tell and we don't tell have always mattered. They have always been there and potentially have been overlooked or erased or ignored, but they've always mattered and they've always been there. And it really just takes one person to highlight that and there's this ripple effect of so many people then coming to the realization of their own importance and their own identity. Poets and storytellers have this way of being really heartbreaking, but really stunning at the same time. Bodies by Shagufta Shamin Tanya. It was an intolerably hot morning in July on the day that Fancy and Nancy's youngest uncle, standing for a long time in his room, went crazy. He had been standing in the middle of the room for a very long time, possibly since the night before. Fancy attended music school, Nancy, dance school. Fancy practiced the harmonium for an hour every morning. She started with classical music and then gradually moved to Tagore songs following the notations. That morning, when Fancy had just reached that line of the Tagore song where the river pulses exuberantly, her youngest uncle saw the glowing hot sun turn into a white ball of snow that never turned golden again. The maid came into the room to find Fancy's uncle standing in the middle of the room, muttering to himself, wearing Fancy's mother's sari. It should be mentioned at this point that Fancy's youngest uncle had a name, a formal name and a pseudonym. He used the pseudonym to write for newspapers and magazines. One day, the postman delivered a letter addressed to Twigs of Parijata. It was good that Fancy's grandfather had already passed away. Otherwise, he would have thrashed Fancy's youngest uncle with his wooden sabots for giving away his Muslim name. Okay, Fancy's youngest uncle's name 
was Shah Alam, named after the last Mughal emperor whose empire was increasingly decimated until it could be squeezed between Delhi and Palam village. His nickname was Dilu. The maid who found him in his mad state was Parul Begum. A level-headed woman, her way of doing things was meticulous and her work generally was immaculate. She was the one to call the compounder, Nurul, the local doctor's assistant. Now Nurul only knew how to administer injections. He became nervous when he saw the condition of Fancy's uncle, who was crawling around the room. It was Parul's idea to lock Fancy's uncle in the attic for the time being. Fancy and Nancy skipped school that day. Monju, their mother, had been planning to see the movie Durdesh with the landlord's son. She had to cancel her plans. The girl's father was arriving in the second week of the next month anyway, so Manju didn't place a long-distance call to inform him. Dilu remained locked in the attic until his older brother arrived. The rooftop was a place very close to Dilu's heart. Mango slices were sun-baked there, as were jars of seasonal pickles and preserved lemons. Indian jasmine blossomed in harmony with vegetables such as okra and harbi perennials. Madagascan periwinkles would sometimes bloom along the cornice, their flowers as purple as the evening sky. been listening to Joshua Edehin, Mame Blue and Chagufta Sharmin Tanya with Amina Jama and Lucy Hanna. Music composed by Dominique Lejeune. Speaking Volumes presents and promotes new and underrepresented voices to diverse audiences. The Not Quite Right For Us anthology celebrates 10 years of Speaking Volumes. It's published by Flipped Eye Publishing and it features 40 international writers. The anthology is available at all good bookshops or you can order from Flipped Eye at www.flippedeye.net. For more information about Speaking Volumes, go to www.speakingvolumes.org.uk. The Not Quite Right For Us podcast is produced by Craig Garrett and Shona Hawkes in collaboration with Speaking Volumes. 